Awesome. So, hey everyone, I'm Lilia Alexander from Territory 3, um, rebranded from Kiwi Landing Pad. Um, today we've got Sarah Perry and Chris Leonard, um, who are co-founders of Snapcoms. And the story here is all about bootstrapping. So they created a global business without using VCs money, which is definitely a very rare thing um, in, in our community environment. Um, you know, the go-to is always typically um, with your startup is to, to go for investment. Um, and so Sarah and Chris have shown us that there is another way to do things. Um, and so that's what we're keen to, to chat about, to explore, um, to help, you know, give you guys ideas if, if you think getting VC money isn't um, the path that you should go on. Um, but anyway, I'd love to introduce Sarah and Chris. Um, Sarah, if you'd like to do a bit, little bit of background on yourself. Hi, yes, I'm Sarah Perry. Um, I'm one of the co-founders of Snapcoms. Um, before I carry on, I just want to give a shout out to Simon Forks, who's on the call. Um, he helped us when we were three people in a rumpus room and uh, did some advisory work for us. And, and uh, yeah, so thanks, Simon. <laughs> um, so we kind of got, got started with Snapcoms in about 2007. And um, I was with the business until three years ago. Um, Chris and for those of you who don't know Chris and I are also married um, so that creates its own unique pressures and um, about three years ago we got we got to about 50 people um, and it was just getting a bit much for me so um, I stepped out just stayed on the board and kind of heard about the business every day but Chris sort of picked up the reins and carried on and took it through to 100 people um, significantly increased the revenues and um, and then we were acquired in August last year um, so some might say that, you know, once the handbrake came off, he did really well. <laughs> so anything else to add, Chris? Uh, look, I mean, uh, it's been a fun journey, I've got to say. I think bootstrapping has its uh, challenges, but also its, its rewards. As a bootstrapper, you really do get to set direction yourself. You're not really having to, uh, you're not the beck and call of, of investors, uh, and you can create the culture and environment that you really want. And I think it worked for us. So, you know, it's been a good ride. I, I also think that um, there is no one good way to build a business. I think anyone who gives it a shot deserves credit and support. Um, and not all businesses suit, suit bootstrapping. So we were in enterprise um, SaaS. It was a complex sale, which created a bit of an economic moat for us because it was harder for competitors to sell into that market. And, um, and also it was... Um, it required a client piece of software to be installed on, on devices, employee devices. So it was, um, yeah, it's quite a complex sale. So um, we were able to charge reasonable sums of money upfront for each sale, which helped fund the business growth. Cool, awesome. Um, if you could also just give a bit of background on what Snapcoms is exactly, um, what it does just for people who aren't aware. Okay, I'll give it my go and then Chris can tell me his version. <laughs> so it's an enterprise messaging solution for businesses to push messages out to employees. So things like um, wellness messages, um, security awareness, those sorts of things. Um, and messages get pushed to target groups on things like visual medium, like screensavers, pop-ups, scrolling tickers. Um, there's also a newsletter, interactive newsletter tool, um, quizzes and surveys. So there is some two-way comms there too. So um, whenever we say we're in enterprise employee communications, people always say, well, 99% of the time say, oh, are you like Slack? No, we're nothing like Slack. <laughs> so this is for the, the really important messages that need engagement and measurement that they've been read and interacted with. Chris, anything to add? Yeah, the, the, and the problem we really addressed was information overload. That's never really changed. Uh, back in the day, email was really gaining a lot of momentum and people were getting spammed with email. And that was the problem the solution sought to solve. It just provided a more direct way of allowing organisations to push, and I use that word deliberately, push communications directly on screens of computers or mobile devices so that they would get read. Uh, and, and, that's, and that concept of, of information overload or noise uh, hasn't gone away, probably got worse. So I've been able to send communications that are important to the organization out to employees. So they do read them in a timely manner. Uh, brilliant. And uh, no, it really does solve a problem. And the, the domain we sort of operated in was employee communications and, and that transition to employee engagement over time, because the, the better an organization can get at communicating with its employees, certainly around vision, 
matters that are aspirational, uh, it becomes more engagement orientated. And that um, is clearly a big driver for a lot of organizations now. Um, so, you know, long story short, we solved a problem and, and, it, and it worked well. Well, awesome. Thanks, guys, for the, the background on SnapCons. Um, I'd love if you could kind of just take us back to the grassroots of when you got things started. Um, you know, what, what kind of was going on at that time? Um, and just, yeah, kind of just curious of that backstory um, from the very, very start, um, yep. how you did things. Okay. Um, so um, back in sort of the early-ish 2000, it was about 2003, 2004, um, um, a guy called Dave Selby came up with the initial concept and built an MVP and he had some support from the ice house at the time. And, um, and so he battled away with that for a couple of years. Um, and then Chris got involved with some advisory work. Um, and, and then it got to the point where David had enough and wanted to exit the business. So at that point, um, Chris and I, and uh, another guy who was involved, um, took the business from there on in so and then sort of grew it from there so there was one one customer at that point um so it wasn't a complete from scratch business for certainly for us anyway um yeah so that, that's how it began um the very early stage mvp was pretty basic and so but we did i think that the fact that we had one customer allowed us to really understand the value of the solution and then evolve it based on their needs and then take you know understand how to map those needs to other customers and then build it a, you know a product and a platform rather than a custom solution over to you chris yeah i think look, i think the in the early days it was really just validating product market fit and uh, that first customer uh, we actually uh, you know I, I was involved in the sales process behind that was vodafone and uh, vodafone are a big big brand in new zealand um not so big at the time but big enough and uh, knowing that vodafone was a global brand uh, certainly resonated with us in terms of the the relevance of the solution in terms of addressing a problem that could then scale globally. And, you know, it's strange. You think, you know, only one customer, um, but a customer of that size, of that magnitude, uh, and the, the person that we engaged in that organization, who was, uh, I think, the internal comms manager or somebody of that ilk, uh, really knew his staff and had a team around him that, that, you know, knew that the Snapcom solution could really solve the problem. And that just gave us the confidence, knowing that we had nailed product market fit and that we had support really from an advocate who could help us take this globally uh, was enough of a uh, inspiration, allowed us to sort of drive forward from there. If it hadn't been for that, I think we probably wouldn't have bothered. I think I need to add to that, though. Um, in terms of confidence, we... We operated Snapcoms as a side gig and held full-time jobs for quite a few years. We didn't, um, and I mean, the Vodafone deal gave us the opportunity. I, I was able to sort of talk my way into presenting at a conference, which was the very first conference for internal communicators in New Zealand and, and present a case study. So that, that case study gave us the credibility we need to sort of start to win smaller customers. But a lot of this was done on the side while we, I mean, we had kids who were, I think we had a three-year-old and an 18-month-old when we started. Um, and so it was a massive juggling act between holding down jobs, looking after kids, and then trying to meet customer needs. So um, yeah, it was it was an absolute grind. And then in 2011, we, we were starting to hire staff. We'd just gone full-time, and um, we needed to be able to hire staff that didn't want to come, you know, that weren't. Uh, so, so working in our rumpus room was a bit off-putting to some of the staff we wanted. So um, we then had to get offices. And at that point, we got really serious about the business. I think the physical move to offices created a real um, mental move in our heads as well. And we really sort of committed. And, and that's when things started to really happen. So, um, yeah, so it's, it was, it's quite a long journey. <laughs> yeah. And I'll, just to add to that, because there's some questions coming through too. But just, just quickly, once we got that first customer Vodafone, we... We went out and did um, outbound and we did some what we call breakfast briefings. So we, there was a, a, a cafe in Newmarket uh, and they had a, a presentation area. So we just we literally cold called internal comms managers or people with that title, uh, which we found on LinkedIn and invited them to a presentation. Uh, we're all going to buy them breakfast. They'll learn something. And we used that as an avenue for lead gen. And that actually worked. Um, surprisingly, we actually got a bunch of people in, um, you know, some of the banks, TVNZ and a few other companies. And we just did a pitch um, really around 
the problems they had and, and, and the challenges that they faced and how they could be addressed, not just necessarily with SnapComs, but just through best practice. Obviously, we pitched SnapComs as well, and that just led into conversations that led into sales. So, mm. you know, that, that first reference customer um, was absolutely critical. I and think, you, you, oh, you sorry, I, I was also going to say that, um, you know, we, we weren't experts in employee communications when we um, first got involved. And so there was a lot of time, certainly from my perspective, because Chris was more involved in the product side, just reading deeply into the area, going to, you know, um, well, not to many events because we couldn't afford to go, but, and there wasn't any in New Zealand at that point, but that happened later, but reading deeply in the area and, you know, understanding the mindset of the people. We, we were involved in um, the Auckland Internal Communications Networking Group. So after the conference that we pitched at, there was a group set up where we all got together. And so I was involved in running that. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a $5 donation. And I bought the beer and the chips and, well, the wine, because it's mostly women. <laughs> um, and, and people kind of presented to each other about what they were doing in their businesses. And so, and, um, and at the time, uh, someone who became a friend said, why on earth aren't you pitching your product at these meetings? And I said, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to listen. I'm here to understand the target audience. So, you know, it was more important to me to be seen as someone trustworthy so that I could, you know, hear those problems than it was to pitch at that stage. Pitching happened elsewhere. And then, yeah. and then once we understood those problems, we then started creating, you know, um, marketing content, content marketing, early content marketing and SEO and started to generate an inbound marketing engine and started to generate leads. So we switched at that point to pure inbound marketing. And um, that was, a, that worked amazingly well for us. We had so many leads, we had to cherry pick which ones we answered. So, <laughs> so and that's how we went global really, because, you know, at, at that point inbound marketing meant that we got leads from anywhere. So I think it also highlights the fact that, you know, you focus on a domain and you know it and you get to know it really well. I mean, as Sarah said, we weren't experts, but we became experts mm. just through sheer force of will and just spending the time researching that domain and getting to know people. Uh, we're also fortunate too in, in terms of uh, organisations. And there's one called International Association of Business Communicators, and there are others. These are global organisations that centre around that domain and that domain only. So your target market of buyers, influencers, are all part of that organization. So the ability to engage that association at a deep level, um, get to know people, learn from them, but also pitch and sell, go to conferences, um, have booths and drive brand awareness uh, was hugely beneficial. And I think that that's part of our early success as well. I, mean, I think um, also, sorry, we're, we're dominating here. But, um, we were picking off a persona that didn't hold a budget that mm. no one really wanted to talk to. I mean, it would have been easy to think, oh, we've got a technical solution. Let's try and sell it to IT people or HR teams who hold the budgets. But what we did was we targeted our content to um, the problems that internal communicators were facing and offshore, sometimes they're called employee communicators. And so that was a foot in the door sales technique. And then we had to build the resources around that so that those internal champions could then on sell with our tools to the HR people, to the budget holders, to legal, and especially to IT teams. That's something we learned a bit later on that, you know, IT teams were the gatekeepers. If, if we're going to install software on their network or on employees' devices, we absolutely had to have a pitch for them too. So we even came up with a pitch that was specifically for IT teams to get yeah. their messages out. And that's how we landed on security awareness communications, which is huge. I mean, people throw a ton of money at security um, solutions and and educating employees on how not to click spammy links and things like that is kind of a critical part of that so um yeah so so it was definitely learned as we went and one of our core values was evolution so you know just to keep learning and growing and adapting it's one of one of the questions you know is asking you know is our solution related to time critical events um yeah absolutely i mean it's not just that um, there's a spectrum um of communications types in an organization from something that is time critical, it's an emergency, people are going to die, active shooter, versus something that's more social, can be read in your own time. But you know, the example that Sarah's just cited, cybersecurity or security-related matters can be time critical. If if there's a if there's a link going around that if you click it, you're going to get malware uh, or ransomware on your machines, you you want uh, the, the company, the security team to be able to send out a, a notification that's going to take over the entire screen and basically say, don't do not click this link, you know, um, to say you're, you're avoiding that um, issue. 
Yeah. So that, um, that addresses that. Um, there's just a question here. Um, you know, what were the first roles um, in your first hires? Well, I think we had, you know, to be fair, we had quite a complementary skill set when we first got going. So I was sort of commercial product. Um, Simon, the other guy, he was technical, and Sarah, you were sales marketing. Yeah, and then people once we started to grow. Yeah. Yeah. And so the highs from then on in sort of complemented what we did and, and gave us more ability to focus on other areas that, that we were best suited to. We, we were lucky that um, a friend of mine who I knew through um, a previous existence was moving back to America. And she was quite keen to take our solution and try and pitch it in the US. Um, and at that time, NZT were willing to co-fund that type of activity. And that was quite early stage. I mean, I think now they have like a, a limit in terms of revenue, but we were, we were a smaller amount of revenue at that point. And um, so they co-funded her to go and be feet on the ground and pitch. Mm. And that, that took quite a while because she had to establish our brand. But once we got um, a couple of customers in America, it became, it was able, you know, referencing local case studies made, made it much easier to sell. And to be honest, it was easier to sell to Americans than it was to Kiwis. Not much. <laughs> it was a much more transactional sale. Um, in terms of the competition, someone's asked about competition. Um, the, initially, when we started our internal communications and employee communications was not a sexy area. No one really cared about it. Um, so it was, it was quite a good time to sort of cut our teeth and learn and grow. Um, then uh, social media hit. So, you know, we're, this, is <laughs> this is how long the company's been, been grafting away. The social media hit, um, I don't know, was that what year was that? About 2010? Yeah. It started to become like internal communicators were like, well, if it hasn't got social media and then we can't possibly do it, you know, if it's not a wiki or a blog, then, you know, so at that point we kind of bit the bullet and outsourced, uh, well, uh, contracted a couple of developers to build a social channel so that we could have a social channel. And so we tried to differentiate ourselves in terms of the needs of the enterprise at the time. Um, we made some sales of that, but ultimately as that market grew, we withdrew those products and focused on our core value proposition, which was getting employee attention. And um, so, you know, the competition heated up in the social media side. And then sort of in, in the later years and probably in the last couple of years, um, enterprise comms has got really sexy and well-funded competitors um, started to enter the market. But again, they were all going for mostly the social stuff. So that's employee-employee collaboration, whereas we were really always really differentiated around, um, you know, it's top-down push essentially. I mean, we have other channels and we can argue the case that there's engagement there and there definitely is, but ultimately the people deciding which messages go out are the business and the business owners. So, um, and the business units. And, um, and I think, we, you know, we held our position on that. It was okay to say, there's a valuable reason to be pushing messages. Yes, collaboration's key. Yes, it's really important for employees to have bottom up, but equally there's a certain type of messages. And so getting really clear about how organizations used our channels and what to use them for rather than, because there was a temptation early on with some organizations just think, oh, well, they're not reading my email. So I'm just going to spam them with pop-up alerts about my thing. And obviously that that's going to, um, that's going to piss employees off, to be completely frank. So, um, yeah, we had to we had to be quite clear about how the channels should be used and what the best practice was. So, yeah, anything? and I also just on that matter of, on that point of competition. So, uh, because there's an app that needed to be installed, it did it did keep some of the competitors away, and then those that did move into that space really did focus on collaboration. But seriously, we just we just stuck to our guns. It's all about getting employee attention and mm. being overt push push comms channels, and we just stuck to that religiously. There were a few people in that space who did something similar, but uh, they didn't really make much headway for, for whatever reason. I'd also add too that you don't have to be competitive, you know, just on and be unique, just in terms of your product. We focused heavily on delivering a great experience um, all the way from the prospect of first engaging us through to when we'd secured that customer. Um, yeah. You know, we, we had... Uh, in time teams of people who delivered customer success support um, in the right way, uh, in a timely manner, um, in a very personable way. And it, and it just resonated with our, with our customers and prospects. And, you know, more often than not, prospects who we didn't secure came back later knowing that we had a good product anyway, but they liked us as a company and as a, as a company who was going to deliver 
a high level of personalized service, um, not overly personalized, but you know, in, a, in an empathetic way to their needs. And they it just mm. built trust. So I have they, to, yeah. yeah you I you just go. want to jump in with some other thoughts and having a lot of brain farts. Um, so uh, one of the things that I think was a, a step forward for us was our initial value proposition was really wordy. It was something like um, innovative employee communications channels to bypass email um, to get employee attention, right? And, uh, and people went, ah. So then we just changed that to get employee attention, three words. And, uh, and that, that came out of reading Made to Stick, which I recommend to anyone who's trying to sort out their core value proposition. That really helped us differentiate ourselves, those three words. And it was on everything we did. It was on T-shirts, it was on mugs. We didn't have T-shirts at the time, but... Um, and, uh, and it, it was it just it just gave that clarity we needed. Um, just looking at one of these questions, um, how did you balance product development costs with maintaining your shareholdings so as not to take VC funding? Um, that was I mean Chris can talk to this more, but I'll go first. Um, it was always a juggling act. Um, so we we charged up front for an annual license. So, and I think I've met a few people that charge monthly and I think you can actually, people will be it's surprising what people will pay for if you ask them. So, um, so they, they paid up front, which gave us, you know, money in, in the coffers to fund developments. Um, obviously we needed to deliver over that 12 month period, otherwise they'd have to pay it back, but we made damn sure we did. But there was always more to do than we could we could manage like our, our development pipeline. I think it was incredibly frustrating for our developers because you know we had a plan, but then a big customer would come along and and they needed a particular part of that plan to be activated faster. So it was constantly being prioritised to follow the money. Um, and so, and there was always like five things to do, and we could only do one. So we always had to go where the biggest pain was. And, um, and so we ended up always ranking things in terms of its impact and its cost. And so the things that were the lowest cost with the biggest impact always got done first. Um, and then the other stuff came later. Over to you, Chris. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, it, that's a good question. And uh, there comes a point when uh, your software is starting to break. It's got so much tech debt in it that you need to address it. Uh, and as a bootstrap business, you are chasing the dollar. So you, you do wait for the right times to do things like that. And we just chased the dollar till we had enough customers, enough recurring revenue uh, you're always operating lean and you're always having to make those compromises. But, you know, then we, we, we prioritize, we've got to refactor parts of the platform in a significant way in areas to allow us to scale going forward. And that we just, we probably committed a year to doing that. Still did product features, et cetera, but we, we put a team or teams onto a, a pretty extensive refactor and then rolled that out. Uh, because we knew if we did that, we could then develop a lot, lot faster um, going forward. So, it's just timings, uh, really. And you just you just got to do what you got to go do. Yeah, there was always more to do than we could afford. So it was, but I think uh, a funded company has different challenges. I mean, we were growing at thirty percent sustainably. Um, we felt comfortable with that growth. It was a challenge for us, but we didn't feel that we were taking on too much risk. Um, there's a question saying how long before you could pay yourselves. Um, well, we fin we refinanced our house, so we didn't have to pay ourselves. Um, our other co-founder, who was the main developer, he um, he didn't have a home to refinance, and so he drew a salary, and it was kind of, and Chris got a small salary, but we kind of shared that income. So it was, I mean, looking back on it, um, it was kind of a bit ridiculous, and we didn't really think about fairness, um, and and uh, that wasn't necessarily recognised down the track, but. Um, we just did what we had to do to keep going. We weren't really interested in the money. It was just about, can we put food on the table for our family and can we meet the bills? And um, um, yeah, we were just focused on growing. So for me, I think it was about two years of free work um, before I started drawing anything. For Chris, I think it was from, the, from when we really started going hard, it was probably about a year. Um, yeah, but even then our salaries were really, really low. Um, I can't remember what they were, but they were, you know, they were ridiculously low. Chris's mum used to come... Um, two nights a week, she'd turn up, she's, she's 94 now, this Germanic lady, with a box of food that she bought from Pack and Save. She'd cook meals for us, fill the fridge up, look after the kids, and we'd just get on with our work. And, uh, and so she was a machine, she helped us. Um, and she, she would have been, what, 80 something at the time? Yeah. It was amazing. So um, yeah, it's, it's hard, but um, yeah, it was worth it. <laughs> Ultimately, it was worth it. And the book that led to the three-word message, it's called Made to Stick. 
and it's by Dan and Chip Heath, I think. I can't remember the name of the other guy, but it's if you look made to stick and Dan and Chip, you'll find it. So, yeah. Awesome, cool. Some really great insights there. I loved um, earlier when you were talking about sort of strategic sales, it's more about um, making a good impression than trying to go right in and sell something. Um, mm -hmm. Just build up those relationships first. Um, Certainly while we were trying to understand the market, I mean, at some stage we had to get hardcore sales focus, but um, yeah, but, but using an inbound marketing model meant we never had to ask people to buy. It was always them inquiring with us. So, you know, for a trial or something. Yeah, yeah that's, that's awesome. To, it's yeah. always a good problem to have um, too many people wanting to use yeah. yeah, that's great. Um, do you think, how would things have been different if you were to have got VC money like did you consider that um, yeah yeah we did um for us we you know we're young kids at home and I was I was mm -hmm. working the hours around them I was trying to be flexible um and also just the way I work I tend to go really hard and then I need to stop I crash and burn so um, uh we you know growing at 30 percent wouldn't mm -hmm. have attracted a VC and also um you know we didn't want that kind of pressure because um Anyone that, you know, if you talk to any investor, they will tell you that they, they expect nine out of 10 of their companies to either fail or not grow as they expect. So they're looking for a 10x or more return. So they need to see that kind of growth and they will drive all the companies they invest in to grow that fast. And, uh, and that creates a different type of pressure. So, um, you know, you might have more resources to throw at the problem, but we didn't know how to grow that fast. We were still learning and we were like iterating as we went, that evolution value. Um, was really important to us to just keep delivering value and grow and, and find the gaps in the market. Even with our inbound marketing strategy, it was, would have been too hard to explain because we were basically doing keyword research. So we were identifying a problem that an internal communicator faced, doing keyword research to find out if we could compete online and get found for that, and then researching the area, writing content about it to attract leads. And if it was a highly competitive search term, we just didn't go there. So there was no like, um, here's our strategy and here's the niche we're going after. It was like, oh, we've just come up with a great new keyword idea. Let's do some research there. Oh, yep, let's create some content. And, you know, one of, one of the best performing pages on the website was created in an afternoon with the team when we were off site brainstorming ideas for newsletters, newsletter names. And that was still the best performing piece of content, which was... Uh, news uh, ideas for newsletter names or something so that generated the most brand awareness for us to this day I think so <laughs> and you know it was just a again it was a brain fart it was like oh I'll research that idea no one's competing for it with any good content so here we go um, yeah that's not the sort of thing that really attracts VCs I think they like to know how things are going to perform and what sort of return they can find and but you know probably if you talk to someone who'd been funded you'd find the pressure to go really fast is, is pretty full on. So it depends what kind of pressure you're up for. There's no easy, easy way. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think to add to that too, uh, VCs would have, like, because they want more predictability in terms of, uh, you know, demand and, and revenue gen. So uh, apart from the, you know, increased rate, you know, going from 30%, you know, annual growth rate to probably something like 50, 60 to 100, they would have forced us to look at outbound, uh, which is way more expensive. Um, you, clearly you burn through the cash um, didn't really suit the way we operated um, so that would have been one thing we would have had to do chances are we would have had to pivot I suspect in terms of the product to address what was becoming more apparent um, in terms of the, the comm space um, you know internet solutions there was the mobile apps that people had which is mm. more around collaboration the slap type models etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, and I think there would have been a lot of pressure to do that where, where we stuck to our guns because we could, because we were the only, it ended up being to Sarah and I, the two, the, two um, the founders and the only shareholders. So somebody asked, you know, how much equity did we have? We had 100% uh, when we finally exited. Um, and, and it just gave us the mandate to do what we knew we needed to do to address the market demand for our particular solution. Um, yeah. I think these would have muddied the waters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, and also, we've now that we're in a different position, we're looking at investing into other businesses. And um, at the moment, again, we're just doing a lot of listening. We're not really um, saying a lot. We're just trying to understand the mindset of people and, and how things operate. And, and it really is a completely different approach. And, um, you know, also spoken to another enterprise software vendor who um, 
was looking to get funding. And I think if you can say I'm the Uber of dog food, then um, and, and you can show it's a really fast growing market, then investors get excited. But if you say, well, I sell this employee communications messaging solution that targets this, these multiple niches that, you know, is successful in these really complex areas, they just go, oh, yeah, no. Nah. It's, um, you know, you get five minutes to pitch, basically. And um, so it, complexity tends to put investors off, I think, because they can't understand it. So, um, and I do, I strongly believe that you can get real growth and, um, you know, create real economic impact for New Zealand by focusing on niches and solving problems. And, and that's not, you know, VCs tend to chase the hype. It's like, oh, along our journey, it was like, oh yeah, as Chris mentioned, oh, mobile apps, that's the big thing, right? Great, create a mobile app, jump on that wagon. You know, oh, social media, that's the next thing, jump on that bandwagon, whereas, well, no, we're actually the antithesis of that. This is what we're doing, so. Um, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I'd be curious, um, does that mean you now looking into invest, do, would you view companies in a different light to typically what VCs do? Like, do you go past the hype and try to look a bit deeper? Yeah, I mean, there's a real gap. We were looking at revenue-based investing. Um, there's a real gap. So the companies that can grow at 10x, fantastic. Mm. There's so much money in the market for those guys at the moment. The valuations are just nuts. So that's put us off because... I think when you know a little bit about what's behind the curtain, you, you just kind of get really cynical <laughs> and you see all the reasons that things are going to fail. Mm. Um, and then at the other end of the market, the companies that can grow sustainably at 30% year on year, there's not, there wasn't anything for us at the time, like banks wouldn't touch us because, you know, they needed to see assets in a warehouse or, you know, things that they could touch. That's changing a bit now. I think there's a bank offering... Um, loans to SaaS type businesses who have got 3 million revenue, annual revenue. Um, and then there's this new area called um, revenue-based investing. And even for companies that can grow fast, some of the payment gateways like Stripe will do revenue-based investing where they just take their return through each transaction. So, you know, they take their cut as it goes through. So there's, there's definitely a lot happening in that market. There's a company called IndyVC, which is doing um, revenue-based investing. So there's there's all sorts of financial models out there. Chris was just um, on a TechCrunch webinar about alternative investment models, aren't you, Chris? Yeah, you wanna yeah, yeah. It was similar, similar to those. Um, uh, I think they they assume they for companies that were uh, monthly billing, uh, they they bundled up a bunch of the probably the primo customers um, that that were not likely to churn and then just owned the debt and then paid out an annual amount. Um, so the company had some cash up front effectively to do stuff with. Um, so, you know, there, there are emerging different models out in the marketplace. I know there's some crowdfunding type VC people who, you know, source a bunch of funds um, from a whole bunch of small people, but I think they're still adopting a very much a VC mindset. Um, I think, you know, for us going forward, you know, we know that companies that are growing steadily at 30% that have got all the right disciplines in place internally and, and really know their domain and, and where the, the founders are, are passionate, focused people who are, are great with building a team around them, you know, their staff, the, the leadership team, uh, probably the, the companies to, to, uh, to bet on. Mm. Um, yeah. A question around um, how did you stay motivated um, if there were times without results? Do you want I, me I to go to first? I've got a good oh. story. So there, oh, there's go another on question. Then. There's another question too around, you know, you know, I think you might have sort of said, you know, were there times when we did consider getting a VC or getting money from somebody? Um, and, you know, and how do you learn from your, um, you know, your, almost your greatest failures? Uh, there was a point in time uh, we had just moved to our, not our first office, but our first office was a really crappy, really crappy sort of house, really, in an industrial estate, somewhere in the heart of Takapuna, believe it or not. Um, adjacent to it, there was this quite nice office. We ended up moving to this quite nice office and it was a huge stretch financially for us. And the office is not big by you know, current standards, but then we were a small company and we had one team in one corner and one team in another corner. It was like ridiculous. But we did that because we, we knew that we were going to grow because you, know, you could see the trajectory. And, and um, probably because we had a lot of space, we thought we, we needed to fill it up. So we hired a bunch of people. Uh, and uh, revenues didn't transpire the, that we had projected. And that's, you know, it's, it, 
it's quite a moment when you start to realize that uh, we're gonna, we are gonna fail as a business. We're gonna run out of money. We're not gonna make payroll um, unless we do something pretty drastic. And um, that was around one Christmas time and we had to make a call and we did. I remember making those calls to people, literally making them redundant, I think just before New Year's, uh, between Christmas and New Year's, not a, not, a, not a nice time. And then we had, we had continual cash flow problems for a while. Um, but, you know, from there on in, you learn that you've, you've got to focus on the cash and, and put buffers in place and not spend too much. So that was a, you know, that was a moment where, you know, we realized that you need to put systems in place to manage your cash flow. Cash flow is king. And you just got to focus on those key metrics and make it work. Yeah. Um, I mean, that that moment where we realized we had to let people go was just heartbreaking. And like even now I'm feeling quite emotional about it. And um, it was a really hard lesson to learn. And so, you know, at that point, Chris came up with this idea that um, we don't spend any money on growth unless we've got three times our monthly burn in the bank and five times our monthly burn in terms of working capital. So that's what's in the bank and what's coming in. And that helped us sleep at night because that, that pain of having to let those people go. And we were able to hire a few of them back again once things recovered. But yeah, I'd never, ever wish that on anyone. It was just horrific. And um, yeah, and, and these people are with you and they believe in the journey. And then to let them go, especially at that time of year, is just fucking horrible. Sorry to swear. <laughs> um, and in terms of staying motivated, to, to answer that question, um, Chris and I have quite different personalities. Um, I'm quite a passionate person. So I get really excited about something and I'll just go, 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 go. And then I'll crash and burn. And there was times when the stress got too much for me and I'd just be in floods of tears and sobbing. And Chris would come and um, put his arms around me and pat me like a dog. And, uh, and then we'd be okay again. <laughs> and Chris just helped. Uh, he, he just worked in a different way. When he was stressed, I knew he was super stressed if he was like cleaning out cupboards. That was the way he managed stress. So it was like, okay, there's something we need to talk about here because Chris is doing some serious cleaning out of cupboards. <laughs> um, but I think being a married couple, some people get put off by that. But I think it equally means you've got that, you're in it together for the long haul and you carry each other through it. And you don't, you, you kind of, you have the resilience of, of that long-term commitment to, to keep going. And, and I think some co-founders have that anyway because they're really close friends or they build that kind of muscle. But um, yeah, I think it's a strong relationship. It's like going to war together. You know, you've got each other's backs. So yeah, it's hard. It's hard. I think it's like you know, <laughs> having those cash flow, working capital metrics, and sticking to them uh, takes away the the financial risk. Yeah, uh, which it does. for me was a real trigger. Um, I think the other thing that keeps you going too is so long as you can see growth future growth potential, and you, you can see your recurring revenues in the future mounting up, um, which are going to take away, you know, current pain, uh, mm. you know, it's all going to be right in time. Yeah. I think that and, that and building a great team of people. And I think, you know, the, the people was what made the business at the end of the day. It wasn't, mm. you know, it wasn't us. It wasn't the product. It was actually the team, the leadership team and, and all the staff that we pulled together. Mm. And um, in terms of um, sort of managing the business, you know, we used Salesforce even from early on because, you know, we were lucky that, you know, we hit the market around the time that uh, enterprise SaaS solutions were available to us. So we could use all these great tools at low cost. And um, so we could dashboard the hell out of everything. We could see what was coming. We could see what the lead pipeline was. We could see what the sales were going to look like. So we could map all of that. And we made that visible to every single employee so that they knew what was coming in. And, and we had um, traffic lights. So in terms of those cash cash ratios and working capital ratios, they were calculated on a weekly basis and everyone could see if we were in green, amber or red. So they knew that um, if they needed to spend money in an area of their business, that it probably wasn't gonna happen if they were amber, um, if, you know, if the business was amber. So um, people understood the reasoning um, of why we were sort of tightening our belts and not, you know, not hiring the people that we desperately needed or you know, refactoring a particular part of the product. Um, until we got to green. So we were just constantly reprioritizing spend based on where we were with those ratios. Um, but people understood that and they were heavily involved in driving the strategy so that, you know, they knew, they understood. 
and I think that helps engage people too when they're involved and it's not you know pushed on them from a board which is another another area we could talk about we didn't ever have a formal board no um you know we were directors but um you know people always used to say just why the hell haven't you got a board and you know um outside advisors would say oh you need to have a proper board and we was we used to say well well why we've got an amazing management team that drive a strategy with us and we plan it off-site with them every quarter and you know we measure it and we have okrs and so what what value would a board add other than telling us to grow faster or take less risk or you know it's like you've got to understand the business to be able to add value i mean just to add to that though we did we did tap into a lot of smart people outside of the business. Um, we weren't shy in, in reaching out to anybody and everybody who we thought had something of value to, to contribute. Because we, we don't know all the answers. We never did, never pretended to know all the answers. And we needed help. And we just went out and just asked questions of various individuals. And um, we got a lot of benefit from that. And I think that was, you know, we didn't have a, a board or an advisory board per se, but we had enough people in market, if you will, who we could talk to to help us. And that was yeah. that was really beneficial. I think also um I just want to do a shout out really for um Mark Talbot. He um he was our virtual CFO for a while. I don't know if people know Mark Talbot. I mean he had a bit of a bumpy ride recently, but when we hit that point where we we couldn't make salary, um this was another point actually. This is when there's some shareholder conflict. Um and we were absolutely gutted. We might not, might not be able to make salary, but we knew we had the working capital. We knew we had it coming in. This guy, our, our, essentially our accountant, paid the salary bill for us because he knew the money was coming. How amazing is that? How amazing. So, you know, people just really step up when you need them. If you show them what you're doing and, you, you know, you're, you're open and transparent and authentic with people, then um, it's amazing what people would do to support you. So, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Um, just a silly question. You paid him back or was Of that course, yeah, oh, yeah. He, yeah. He knew them. He could see the money was coming in. So okay. essentially it was a loan. But, you know, yeah. but he knew that he knew as much as we did that if we didn't pay salaries, that was going to send a huge signal and rattle people. And we had such a great team. We didn't want to do that. So, yeah, he, he, he stepped up. And that was incredible. That, that's honestly such a cool story. Yeah. Um, and just quickly going back to the the concept of um, not having a board, from your like personal perspective, would you think it's perhaps um, still good to have a board if you are a startup that's raised a ton of money? Like, do you think it might be beneficial then? Um, I think you have to. I think if you're raising money, you have to have that governance in place and you have to have that reporting line. And I think... Um, one of the benefits of bootstrapping is if you look at the reasons why companies fail, one of them is, you know, cash, but another one is suffocation. And I think a board can suffocate a young business because you need to be agile, you need to iterate, you need to keep adapting. And, you know, and I think having to communicate to a board um, creates a different level of pressure and you need to conform to expectations and communicate well. And we were just running so fast and kind of, trying to iterate things as we went. Um, you know, I think there was a question about, um, about the, you know, the complexity of asking for VC funding. Again, it was something that we didn't know enough about and it was easier to go out and win another customer than it was to raise money. So for us mm -hmm. at the time. Um, I'm just another question, like, um, did you ever use the Kia network um, or NZTU Beachheads network? No, not, um, it was recommended to us. I think NZT has grown a, a lot over the last few years, but certainly back when I was um, heavily involved with, with interacting with them, they hadn't quite got their head around SaaS and certainly not around inbound marketing. So they've definitely changed and Chris would advocate for them now saying they're amazing. But at the time, unless you were selling a physical product and had feet on the ground in the territory, they just didn't get you. So Kia was like, well, go talk to this person who'd sold some manufacturing solutions in this territory. It's like, well, no, that's, or, you know, let me give you an introduction to this company. It's like, well, well, I'd rather follow up this lead that I've just got from someone that's really interested in using our product to solve a problem so rather than try and do that strategic sell. Um, and there's definitely a place for that. And, and sort of certainly while I was there, I think we were the first company where NZT co-funded um, us growing our inbound marketing engine. 
which um, I think was a huge step forward because it really made a big difference to our business to, our, to be able to double down on some of our inbound marketing just grew the business and created more jobs and had a bigger economic impact than um, being introduced to someone who didn't really understand our product or our market. So, but it depends on the business. So, you know. Oh, yeah, I've just seen um, just a comment come through. Yeah. Um, I can't see your full name. It's Lisa. Lisa something um sorry and they're saying they um they now have a tech team and a real focus on SaaS now at NZTU yeah they do yeah and and um and I think Lisa is it Lizana yeah. Yeah, yeah I know Lizana she's a lovely lady um she she really understands SaaS and um technology and yeah Chris talked to NZTU you done recently they've been amazing yeah I mean we, we increasingly we we work with NZTE and Callahan for that matter but not just them, a whole bunch of other people as well, but I will talk about NZT and Callahan um, to really help us as an as a entire business and not just not just for money either. Um, I gotta say the, the, the increasingly the benefit we got from both Callahan and NZTE was um, some of the workshops they ran, some of the advisors they could um, source for us, not in, a, you know, not in a, a formal advisory sense, just people we could tap into to get help, you know, it might be around a particular digital marketing strategy or something to do with, you know, um, end user research or whatever it might have been. They just allowed us to plug into various people that that knew their domain really well. And, um, you know, this is a shout out to Steve Allen from NCT, who is amazing. Um, and, and I think he continues to help Snapcoms and um, Zane Trevedon from Callahan. You know, both of those individuals, um, have been, you know, for me at least the last three years, almost like you know, my virtual team, if you will, outside of the business, because I can call and talk to them about anything and they'll help, you know, and it, it just, it's just somebody to talk to and the, the advice or concepts they, they bring back to me. Actually, you know, just on that, um, Zane introduced me to uh, growth marketing or the growth, the growth mindset. And that was a huge step forward for the business in terms of just getting people on board uh, around how to operate as, a, as an organization more collaboratively with a focus on the vision and, and to do things the right way. And, you know, and just input like that made, made such significant difference to the progression of the business. Yeah. There's a question here saying, um, what was the name of the bank that offers a revenue-based um, loan? Do you remember, Chris? Was it ANZ? Oh, I've tried to do a quick Google, but nothing comes yeah. up. Specifically about uh, we'll, see, we'll see if we can find it. And, and, oh, oh yeah. uh, BNZ. BNZ. Yeah, BNZ has been doing a lot of work around um, funding, um, putting startups lately. Could quite possibly be them. Um, yeah. Oh, yes, Grant just said, yep, BNZ did it. Okay. Yeah. There's another question. What would we have done differently? And I, I think Chris might have his own view, but um, Chris and I are quite competitive people. And I think we were fighting for leadership from day one and we were fighting for resource from day one. And, um, and so it was all about, um, you know, like we only had so much resource and so many dollars. And so, I mean, there was a lot of, it's a very high trust relationship, so, but, you know, there was some very um, heated debates about, you know, who should do what and where the money should go. And, and so we both held the CEO role. And, and I had this idea that, I was going to be CEO of a tech company. I set this goal when I was my own company when I was about 25. Um, I've got an engineering background. And so I was kind of living that and thinking, right, I need this job. And so I was competing for it. But to be honest, Chris is so much better at it. I'm good at the early stage and um, I can do the early stage people side. But yeah, I just don't have the emotional resilience to be a CEO. And I think that's my learning. I think um, if we were to do it again, Chris would be the CEO and I'd be doing what I do. <laughs> And I think, so ego, I think ego, I've, I've learned to put my ego in a box now. <laughs> well, we'll qualify that though. I think there's a, I think you need different, you need a different mindset for early stage versus later stage. It's a totally different beast. And, you know, I think, you know, a lot of it is the personality and the drive and the, the ability to be very agile um, at those earlier stages to somebody that has to be more structured later on. Um, you know, that question, you know, what would we do differently? It's, it, you know, often probably not do a lot differently. I think, I think we did a lot of the things right. We just didn't know it. And, it, you know, what's been interesting is as we've gone down and along this journey, 
And as you start to engage the market, you know, and you get input from various people, you start to think, oh, okay. Yeah, they, you know, they're talking about doing something this way. And we sort of did that anyway, not perfectly, but we're on the right track. So getting that validation that we were on the right track, I think was was quite useful, quite, you know, it was quite an eye-opener. I think the, the one thing if I was to say what, you know, for me personally, what I would have done differently is I would have I would have offloaded more stuff earlier to the team or found some two ICs to to just work with me on certain things or just push stuff onto them. Um, Cause I probably held on stuff for too long. Yeah, I think um, in terms of personalities, I'm very much uh, an 80, 20, get shit done. It doesn't have to be perfect. Let's keep moving. Let's make some progress. Whereas Chris is more of a perfectionist. And uh, as he says, those different attitudes have value at different stages. And I think we challenged each other constantly. So, you know, if Chris thought I was being a bit too flaky, then he'd challenge me. If I think, thought he was being a bit too anal, I'd challenge him. And I think some of the reasons that we made probably less mistakes than we might have done individually is because we were debating things a lot. And um, that's exhausting. Like we, we ate, slept and, you know, breathed snapcoms for the best part of 15 years. <laughs> it's been quite an interesting transition. So... <laughs> Uh, how did you guys meet? Is the question that <laughs> at work? <laughs> Not at Snapcoms, though. Yeah, um, I was attracted to Chris because he had a really entrepreneurial mindset, okay. and um, you know, I didn't, I hadn't encountered that much, and I had the similar mindset, and so that was the it was a brain attraction. Um, but yeah, it was at work. It was yeah. at uh, Telecom now yeah. Spark years yeah. ago. Yeah. And funny, then you then sold to Vodafone, was it? It's, it's your yeah, oh, yeah. Sparks Spark, bought our solution, oh, cool. uh, as has Vodafone, as have, I think, all the other telcos. So, you know, it doesn't really mm -hmm. matter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, I was really worried, actually, when Chris retired, that we wouldn't have anything to talk about. Because <laughs> that's our main subject, talking about work and SaaS yeah. and, you know, business. And But, no, we've, we've managed to find new work and SaaS and business to talk about, so... Oh yeah, uh, and then the yeah. other question is, is, what are you doing next or what are you doing now? Um, and what's in the plans for both of you? Uh, we're not sure. I mean, we're, we're kicking around some ideas. Uh, we're really conscious of the fact that we, we're not here forever um, and we want to live our lives. Um, but equally, we miss, uh, we miss the stimulation of, of business. Mm -hmm. So we've been looking at investment, but I'm not sure that it's right for us. Um, we, we prefer to be more hands-on. Um, mm -hmm. We've got an idea that we've been working on, but um, we're doing so much validation of that idea before you even start. Um, you know, that's a massive piece of work and it might still end up as a doesn't doesn't go anywhere. Um, so we're, we're, we're currently sitting on a lot of webinars and learning a lot and then talking about them afterwards. <laughs> um, it's a strange hobby to have, but that's what works for us. Um, so. The answer is, I don't know, if we do another business, we'll probably, because we've now got the resource, we'll probably hire good people earlier on um, and, and hopefully be a little bit less hands-on. But, you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, it's, it's hard to sort of not interfere, I think, when you're used to doing it. And I think the other thing is I have to be conscious of my health because when I, when I stepped out of the operational side, you know, I, I got hit with a bit of an autoimmune thing that was brought on by stress. And... Um, so I'm much more aware of that now. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's more, there's more of a need to balance things and rather go hard because we, we didn't have a social life for, I don't know, it was, it was kids and work. That was it for quite a long time. <laughs> yeah. The kids are all grown up now? Or? Yeah, Daniel's now 18 and looking at university and uh, Alex is coming up 17. So, yeah, a lot's changed. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Um, there's just a question here. Um, what would be the best inbound marketing channels today? Um, like forms yeah. or newsletters or? Um, well, we, we focus very much on search engine optimization and content marketing. So, you know, competing with content, that landscape has shifted. Um, it's a lot harder to compete. You know, Google's now dominated with ads. You've got to have an ad spend now, whereas we could do it all for free. It was just our time to put good content up and uh, optimize it for search and build links to it. Um, now you've got to have a digital PR campaign. So you've got to have amazing content and the resources to reach out to get it featured elsewhere and get linked to. Um, mm. So 
you know, that's a bit more of a commitment. But um, I mean, I think people, there was a question about buying email lists. We didn't ever do outbound selling until, I mean, when we were acquired, one of the reasons it was appealing was because we'd started to acknowledge that, yes, our inbound marketing engine was amazing and it was generating probably 90% of the leads coming into Snapcoms. But um, we knew that that was a high risk strategy because the landscape was changing. So, um, you know, having access to Everbridge's outbound sales teams was a, definitely a, an appealing option. Um, there still is inbound marketing capability there, though. I mean, I think it depends what you're selling. And that's another thing, like with this business idea we're kicking around. If we, you know, the first thing I did was the keyword research to see if we could be found online and how competitive it was, because that also gives you an idea of how competitive the market is and what else is out there ranking. And, um, you know, without, we've agreed without an inbound marketing potential, we wouldn't even touch a business. Um, yeah, because it's just what we know. So, yeah, I don't know, does that answer the question? Sorry, think, Chris, you go, you go. I think the one thing that's changed now is that you need a team. It's not just a, a few people, it is a team to execute digital inbounds, because it's just, it's more complex. It's all about content and getting it yeah. distributed. Yeah. Um, any, any advice for solo founders on whether going alone or finding a co-founder is better? I, th I mean, shall I go first, Chris? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it depends on the business and the person. Like, you know, it's a lot about personalities. Early on, Chris and I... Um, did some Belbin analysis between our personalities to really understand what what drove us and how we could work together and see each other as less annoying <laughs> and, and value each other's differences. Um, I think finding a co-founder is a really tricky thing because you've got to find someone that's got complementary skills but also is is on the same journey and has the same level of commitment. And a lot of it is about life stage as well. You know, we we were you know our other other co-founder at the time was um, a lot younger than us and didn't have kids. And so his, you know, the things he wanted out of the business were different to what we wanted. So, um, you know, and that creates pressure. Um, as a solo founder, I'd say go along to, um, you know, meet other founders. I joined EO for a while, which is the entrepreneurs organization. Um, and I found quite a lot of value from their forums where you basically sit down with other business owners and share your problems and they share what they've done. Um, but I think NZT offers that too. Now there's like kiss my sass and um, those sorts of things. There's an opportunity to go along to those and, and talk to other people. I think, and as a bootstrap business, I think it's easier to be authentic because you don't have to keep this, you know, PR image up. You can just say, look, it's been really shit today and I'm worried about this. Whereas, you know, if you're funded, you can't, you've got to have that big kind of, we're doing amazing, we're crushing it thing on. <laughs> so, Chris, go. You might, my only comment really uh, is if you're going to partner up with a with co founder or co founders, just make sure you've got a really good shareholder agreement that can detail what happens when you want to part ways for whatever reason. Um, mm -hmm. So, you, you know, you can avoid those, those conflicts um, yeah. or, or perpetuating those conflicts. If you've got a, a rules of engagement embedded into your shareholder yeah. agreement, it makes life easy. Being really, really clear about what you both expect from the business. Like one person might quietly think they're going to be exiting for you know multiples of millions in five years and another person might think that they have got a lifestyle business that they want to grow at a certain rate and another person might think that it's a you know multi-generational asset that's going to hand down three generations and their kids are going to work in it so um so at some stage you just have to get on with it i don't know there's no easy answer but if you are a solo founder then surrounding yourself with other founders is a really good thing to do Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Totally. And I mean, obviously, it's a little hard in the, in the current situation. Everything has moved online. Um, yeah. So I guess even just joining into webinars like these, it's, it's a cool way to just um, be virtually around other people. Um, yeah. Otherwise, most main cities do have their own kind of like startup pub um, where things going on, you know, events and guest speakers and things, which are great to, um, to meet mm -hmm. new people um, in the same space. Um, I'm just conscious that we've got to 11 o'clock um, now. So we should wrap up. Um, but amazing. I mean, honestly, you guys have done incredible. Um, I'm in awe in what you've accomplished. Um, you. And I am super excited to see what you do next. Um, but honestly, key thing always is just, yeah, taking care of yourselves and figuring out, yeah, what it is personally um, that you want to do and enjoy. Um, so I think that is really key as well for any founders listening is 
it's, it's all about you personally. It's not just about trying to be the best, hit the big numbers, but it's more like, what, what do you want to do on your journey? Um, yeah. and, and listen to that. Um, yeah. And then make your decisions based around that. Um, so I can see a lot of things coming through in the comments as well from everyone. That is awesome. It sounds like everyone has had a great time on yeah. our webinar today. Just um, one more thing to say. I'm sorry. I didn't really acknowledge our team along the way. We've had incredible people on the journey and we couldn't have done it without them. So, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, cool. Okay. Well, I think we should wrap up now. Unless, Chris, any last words from you? No, look, I'll just reiterate Sarah's comments. You know, we, we have an amazing team um, at Snapcom. So, you know, we had an amazing team that's still there, but, um, but they, were, they were unbelievably good. Um, you know, and without their input, we wouldn't have been as successful as we have been. Um, and the company wouldn't have achieved the, the success it did. You know, it is down to the team at the end of the day. Um, we just happened to be along for the ride. <laughs> 100%. Awesome. Okay, let's wrap up now. But thanks so much to Sarah and Chris for um, joining us today. Um, this recording will be going up on um, Territory 3 slash Academy um, later today. And we'll be check we'll make a post on our um, LinkedIn, T3 LinkedIn channel as well. Um, so if you follow us on, on LinkedIn, um, you'll see it on there as well. But yeah, we'll get that up soon. Um, but awesome. Hope everyone has an amazing rest of your day, wherever in the country you are. Um, and yeah, big thanks to Sarah and Chris, and we'll catch you all on the next one. So, see you guys.